everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net. With me is the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies and economist, Ron Howergan. Ron, welcome back to the Flatlining Podcast. Thanks for having me. In a few minutes, we're going to talk about Medicaid expansion and the certificate of need uh, reform in the state of North Carolina that's relevant to many of our clients at Fulcrum Strategies, because we do have a lot of clients in North Carolina. Uh, and we're going to talk about how it might change the healthcare landscape in that state. But first, Ron, I want you to put on your economist hat for a few seconds, because this is an interesting story, and it's not something that happens in every day. And that was last week's, um, I don't know if collapse is the right word, but shutdown of the the bank, Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, because of a run that went on it. And I guess my first question is, is how does a, a run on a bank happen and what does it say uh, about the economic situation, either in that area or in the country as a whole? Well, um, a run on the bank happens when the depositors, people who put their money in that bank, um, for whatever reason, and there are definite reasons on this one, lose faith in the bank and withdraw their money. You know, banks don't have that money just sitting in a vault they have lent it out to other people or they have purchased investments or assets with it. And so typically banks only have a small percentage of their deposit money on hand. Well, if too many people ask for their money back and the bank can't get that money, you have this run on the bank scenario. Um, and that's exactly what happened to Silicon Valley Bank. The depositors started withdrawing more money than what they had or could get their hands on. And eventually seeing what was going to happen, the FDIC took over the bank and closed it. Um, so they're in the, the government is in control of the bank right now. Mm -hmm. And I guess if someone wants a good uh, adaptation of that in film, of course, you remember the scene in It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy yep. Stewart. They had the run on the bank, which then caused the run on his uh, his family savings and loan. You're, you're, you're thinking of this place all wrong as if I had the money back in a safe. I, the, the money's not here. Well, your money's in Joe's house. That's right next to yours. And in the Kennedy house and Mrs. Maitland's house and a hundred others. Uh, you're lending them the money to build, and then they're going to pay it back to you as best they can. Now, what are you going to do, foreclose on them? Do the customers, do the depositors lose confidence in the bank because of the management or because of certain other economic factors that are happening right now? Well, it, it can be either. I mean, you know, we've had situations in the past where, you know, bank management has been bad. Um, in this case, it was a combination of two factors. One the rapidly increasing interest rates, mm -hmm. which are trying to drive down inflation, um, caused many of the assets that the bank was holding, bonds, treasury notes, et cetera, to devalue. Right. And so a lot of these things that they were holding on as assets were suddenly worth significantly less money than what they bought them for. Um, so as the bank's financials started to become in trouble, many of the depositors, and in this case, most of them were very large um, depositors, businesses, venture capitalists, et cetera, mm -hmm. um, started to see that the bank was in financial trouble. And that's when people started to want to be the first one out the door. Um, and what is especially telling on that, and part of why this happened, is because as most people know, deposits in a bank are insured by the FDIC, but only up to $250,000. Right. The two banks that failed, somewhere around 90% of all the money that was in there as deposits were depositors over $250,000. So they weren't guaranteed to be able to get their money out. And that's why people wanted to be the first one out the door. 
It's interesting you mentioned talking about the interest rates because that that's a good economic uh, analysis of what happens here. Whereas earlier this week on uh, CNN State of the Union, the Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, he seemed to chalk it up to being more of a you know political thing that they had all their eggs in the wrong kind of basket. They were putting too much money into certain what he called woke. You know, um, um, I you know woke ideologies, woke businesses, and stuff like that. And, and clearly, that's not really the case. It has more to do with the fact that they had a loss on their bonds when they needed to get um, cash. So this bank, as it's been reported, you know, a lot of them are big tech, or you know, are their tech companies. It's for Silicon Valley companies. A lot of them are startups. So if we look at this in the healthcare aspect, are there any kind of I wouldn't want to say weird, but interesting, weird specialty banks out there that do anything for healthcare. Could there be a similar situation for for healthcare institutions? Um, there, there typically aren't, you know, sort of because uh, you know most healthcare stuff isn't startup; it's fairly well established. Um, so there typically aren't sort of these quote unquote healthcare banks. Now, I would say this: that the the risk to healthcare is a couple. One is the cost of capital keeps getting more expensive as interest rates go up. So as healthcare organizations, doctors' offices, you know, uh, suppliers, et cetera, need capital, it becomes more and more expensive. So mm-hmm. that's a huge risk to healthcare. Um, the other risk to healthcare is this was not, and we can tell by the second bank that went under, this was not a Silicon Valley tech thing. Right. Because the second bank that came out that went under was as far away from Silicon Valley as you can get. It was in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and went under for similar concerns. Um, so all banks right now are feeling the heat of this, and you can see it in some of the very large banks. I mean, for example, um, Charles Schwab, mm-hmm. okay, which is a, everybody knows that name, a large, well-established, this is not an entity that plays in high-risk startup only or cryptocurrency, right. et cetera. Right. Their stock has just been hammered recently because Mm -hmm. of people's concerns about the banking industry. The FDIC has recently said that, you know, this whole issue of when interest rates go up, these assets get devalued, has recently estimated that there's as much as $620 billion of what they call unrealized losses on bank balance sheets. means they haven't priced them down yet. Um... $620 $620 billion. I think the FDIC there is light. I think that's very conservative. Hmm. So, you know, when people talk about this and if somebody wants to say, oh, well, that's because it was a tech thing or it was a woke startup thing or it was a, no, it really wasn't. The fundamental problem is hitting everybody, which is why you're seeing, you know, Wall Street just punish organizations like Schwab. Um, and it's a function of rapidly increasing interest rates, catching these banks by surprise. Let me ask you one more question on this before we move on to our main topic, uh, and that is the federal government's decision, the Biden administration's decision to um, cover all of the deposits for the bank, not just up to the $250,000, but all the deposits uh, through the FDIC insurance. How does that help or hurt the situation, and does it kind of violate their own rules about the 250000 level? Well, it, it does, and it's sort of an emergency measure, mm-hmm. okay? Um, and it was really, so a couple things going on with that. First of all, um, that's a right now, not taxpayer money yet. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. The money that they're using to cover these two banks is from a 
a pool of money that the banks pay into, pay fees into. So they haven't had to hit taxpayer money yet. And I say yet because they may. Um, the purpose of doing that and doing that so quickly was to keep it from becoming 10 and 12 banks right. that fail. Because these two failed immediately, but there were a whole bunch of banks that were in that warning phase that could happen. And it could have happened, you know, we could have seen 10, 20 banks fail in a week or two. Okay. Because mm -hmm. once these runs start, it's hard to stop them. Well, the best way to stop them, and which is why they did this, was to step in and go, fine, we're going to. We're going to insure all the depositors. Now, if I'm a big depositor in a different regional bank, I can rest assured that, okay, maybe I don't need to pull all my money out right now because the federal government is trying to stop the run on the banks. And that's why they did it. Um, they sort of had to do it or there would have been a worse, much worse run than there was. It's also important to understand that they are not at all protecting the shareholders of the bank or the management of the bank. These are just depositors. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, that's why they did it was to stop it from getting even worse. It still may. I mean, I don't think we're out of the woods yet on this, um, but it was absolutely the right thing to do. Otherwise the headlines would be, you know, what bank failed today. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate uh, getting your perspective on that. I, I knew we could count on you to put your uh, your economist hat on for, for that kind of slightly off topic, but relevant issue, um, because everyone has to do banking somewhere. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, it could happen to you, and we hope and pray that it doesn't. But uh, if it does, we'll we'll talk about it, especially how it affects health care. The main topic we wanted to talk about today is North Carolina's, uh, the legislature's uh, deal there to expand Medicaid and reform the certificate of need laws in that state. North Carolina was one of the few holdouts after the Affordable Care Act to not expand Medicaid. So, Ron, I guess the first question is, is why the holdout and what's in the new deal? Well, the holdout was political. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not just for this state. Um, when Medicaid expansion started after the Affordable Care Act and the federal government you know, offered to pay the vast majority of the expense for states to expand Medicaid. I believe there was only one state with a Republican governor that did it, and that was Ohio when John Kasich did it. Mm -hmm. um, so it was clearly a red-blue thing. Democratic states did it, the Republican states didn't, and it became sort of a political thing. Um, over time, the number of holdouts had been whittled down. North Carolina stayed a holdout because of at the times where, you know, the, the legislature was um, was Republican when the when the governorship was Democrat, they would never get it through the legislature. Right. And so there was this problem of the governor couldn't do it without the legislature and the legislature wasn't going to do it because it was a political fight until now. And they've solved the political fight. So that's talking about why we didn't expand Medicaid in North Carolina when it could under the Affordable Care Act. Talk a little bit about um, what what compromises needed to be made for that to happen um, at this time and to reform the the certificate of need laws. Yeah. So and that was it. There was there was they packaged several issues together, and it was sort of like best way I can talk about it, it's like uh, you know when you hear. Uh, Major League Baseball does like a three-team trade, you know, where three teams get together and everybody gets a little bit of something. Right. Okay? So basically, they got several issues together. One was Medicaid expansion. 
and the other was certificate of needs laws. And they formulated a deal where everybody comes out okay, or they feel like they get something which gives, you know, both political parties the ability to save face by saying, I got X um, and get it through. And, it, you know, from a deal perspective, it was a pretty ingenious thing to do to, to package CON with Medicaid expansion with payments to hospitals to get everybody to be okay with this. So how much money did the hospitals get uh, to, to be okay with letting go of the certificate of need for, for ASCs and, and MRIs in particular? So the hospitals got a couple of things. Um, one was they got a, a chunk of federal money. Uh, I think it's $2.3 billion, um, which is nothing to sneeze at. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing that they did, and this is help makes help make everything work in the legislature, is they gave up about five hundred million of that to pay for the state's part of Medicaid expansion. Okay. So the people could say, well, it didn't hurt the state's budget. So there was federal money that came in. They funneled a bunch of it to the hospitals, and then the hospitals paid a little bit of it back to to cover the cost, the state's cost of Medicaid expansion. The other thing the hospitals got was protection for the rural hospitals. So the CON will go away in North Carolina only in counties where there are at least 125,000 people. And that's about 23 out of the 100 counties. So the rural hospitals who could have been really hurt badly um, got protection. They still have a CON and it's really, just, you know, the populated counties where it goes away. So hospitals got protection in the rural areas and a couple of billion dollars to to buy off on the CON um, in the urban areas. And then the last thing they got was a delay. The CON will not go away um, for ambulatory surgery centers for two years and MRIs for three years. So they've still got some time under the CON before it actually goes away. Okay. So let me step back a little bit here because there, there are some people that don't work in the healthcare world that listen to this podcast. And we we're talking about CON and certificate of need. We we know what that is. So let's step back for a second. What exactly is certificate of need? Certificate of need, and why uh, did some state legislatures uh, decide that they were necessary or reform them and decide they're not necessary anymore? Yeah. So certificate of need is an economic barrier to entry in a marketplace, and in healthcare, there are certain in, in North Carolina right now certain healthcare services that you can't just add. Like you can't add more hospital, inpatient hospital beds without going through a CON. You can't add a new MRI machine. You can't add an ambulatory surgery center. Um, some of them are tied to the specific service or so others are tied to the amount of money you would have to spend to do it. And basically, if you think you need or want another ambulatory surgery center, you have to file this process called a certificate of need to show why the, why the area needs it that it's not being fully served by the existing capacity. And it's a fairly long and involved process and people can challenge you on it. And that involves a, you know, legal battles. And so it's expensive and it takes a long time and it keeps people from just entering the market and building a new MRI machine or a new surgery center. Those are what CONs are. And there's arguments on why you need them and arguments why you don't. Some states have them, most states don't. Um, and there's pros and cons to either. Well, let's talk about that. What would be a pro of, of having a certificate of need? Well, Law, so is. one of the concerns about having an oversupply of something more than what you need of it is that that might drive unnecessary utilization. If there are a bunch of MRI machines, there might be these incentives to order unnecessary tests. The other concern is, well, if you let anybody and everybody come in, how do you know somebody's not going to build something that is not of the best quality? Mm -hmm. 
um, and drive down quality. So that's really sort of the concern is that this idea that, you know, the number of hospital beds in a community should be the number of beds it needs, not the number of beds people just want to build. Because if you overbuild, it might drive up costs or it might reduce quality. Now, the flip side argument is, well, it should be like a free market and the free market will establish the right number and it will help it drive down the price to, um, you know, to uh, the appropriate price. CON states tend to be more expensive for those services than non-CON states because of the, you know, the free market impact. Mm -hmm. So let's uh, talk a little bit about how this will change uh, the healthcare landscape in North Carolina. You, you mentioned, obviously, that there's going to be there's a waiting period for some of these things. Obviously, it's only going to be in certain counties that are of higher populations. So say you're, a, you're someone living in Raleigh. Are you now going to start having, um, you know, how quickly are you going to be able to have much more options to go get an MRI or to go have a, a, an elective surgery somewhere else other than a hospital? I think, you know, after the waiting period, now that we know what the waiting period is, for example, mm -hmm. um, it'll happen very quickly um, because even though you can't build an ambulatory surgery center overnight, well, now that everybody knows the date, you know, when they will be able to open it, you can start building it before that. You just mm -hmm. can't open and operate it until that magic date. So right. you literally could have a new surgery center open the day after, you know, the waiting period is over um, or the delay is over. So I think it's going to happen fairly quickly. Again, it won't happen for two or three years because the law won't allow it until then. But then I think it's going to happen fairly quickly. We're going to see a lot more capacity for things like ambulatory surgery center and for um, MRIs. And that'll give people more choice, but it will also sort of raise the concern about what happens potentially to quality. Right. Well, let's stay with the, the patient quality uh, part of it for, for a second, because obviously you're going to have the, the insurance companies are going to be probably more interested in contracting with some of the smaller independent um, surgery centers, uh, radiology groups, radiology imaging centers, uh, because they're not going to be as expensive as the hospital. Are we? You wrote on flatlining.net sometime last year about a program that United Healthcare was doing with radiology, where they were trying to send people to the the cheapest radiologist possible by giving them some sort of, you know, rating on their on their website. How much do you think you're going to see that kind of thing um, now that the CON laws are going away in North Carolina? Well, I think you're going to see it a great deal. Um, you know, sometimes they'll do a rating on a website. There are other health plans who will have a program where if they find out that you've had an MRI ordered and they know it's going to be done at, you know, a hospital, I'm just mm -hmm. going to pick something. And they know that down the street is another scanner that's significantly less expensive. They'll call the patient up and say, Hey, uh, Matt, we understand you've got an MRI, of the brain ordered, and you're scheduled to have it next Thursday. Just want to let you know that you're, um, you know, your policy has a 20% coinsurance. And when you have that MRI at that hospital where it's $2,000, you know, you're going to have to pay $400 out of pocket. Now, if you don't like that, there's a uh, right down the street, there's Bob's MRI and mm -hmm. he's got an opening tomorrow and his MRI is only $500. Right. And so 20% of that is a hundred dollars. So you're going to save $300 if you want to go to Bob's MRI and you know, the patient will go, Wow, that's yeah, absolutely. I need to save three hundred dollars. That go great. We'll cancel your study over at the hospital, and we'll we'll go ahead and get you on Bob's MRI. He'll see you tomorrow. Um, now, that's in one sense great because we're we're a society that likes choice. 
where society likes information, you know, I should be able to make a, a choice on how much I want to spend for something. But what's missing in that and doesn't get said is that, you know, the MRI at the hospital where it's expensive, um, well, that's on a higher strength magnet. MRIs are mm-hmm. measured by magnet strength. Um, and it has more up-to-date software to acquire that image. And it's going to be read by a subspecialized board-certified neuroradiologist who only reads brain studies. And down the road at Bob's MRI, that's going to be a low-field magnet. It's actually used and refurbished, and their software hasn't been updated in a long time. And, and it's going to be read by a general radiologist. Right. Okay. Obviously, I'm picking the extremes of the two mm-hmm. heads, but this happens. Okay. So the patient doesn't know that. They just think that it's like a loaf of bread. It's all the same, aren't they? I mean, if you're not in healthcare, you don't know that, you know, there's a 0.5 Tesla magnet and a 3.5 Tesla. Okay. Um, so you go to Bob's MRI and you get the study and you get the read that says, oh, everything's fine. But what if it's not? Mm-hmm. What if they missed a brain aneurysm or they missed a tumor or they missed, you know, um, either because the image quality really wasn't as good or the radiologist wasn't subspecialty trained, et cetera. Um, that's the problem with this scenario. And that's the concern I have when the CON goes away is what happens with that reduction in quality. Mm-hmm. There's a YouTuber, uh, Dr. Glancombe Fleckett, he's gotten very popular for making fun of United Healthcare on a number of circumstances. He's got a video that's sort of like this, where he's, you know, he's a doctor, he's calling United Healthcare, trying to get his prior authorization. He said, yes, your, your patient can have the MRI, but they need to go to Texaco Mike, uh, 150 miles away, where and they can only walk past the MRI machine. They can't yeah. actually use it. Yeah. I'll approve your patient's MRI. Great. So I can call the hospital and get it scheduled? Oh, no, no, no. You can't do it at the hospital. Why not? Hospital charges us way too much. Now, there's a facility about 150 miles south of you. Patient needs to go there. Are you serious? Oh, yeah. There's a guy down there. Bought himself an MRI. It's in the back of a Texaco. Just knock on the door. Ask for Mike. Uh, and and I'll, I'll be sure to link it in the in the show notes for the program. But that's, you know, that's what it sounds like United Healthcare has tried to do on, on several occasions either by coming up with arbitrary rankings for their website um, or things like what you were just talking about now. I, I do think it's important to point out though that it's obviously not all independent imaging centers are, are you know, necessarily that bad. Like what you said, it's, a, it's an extreme example. Do you think this could, in turn, drive down prices at the hospital uh, and to make them more competitive with some of the independent imaging centers? Oh, it absolutely will. Um, and, and there, you know, there are definitely examples in CON states and, and other states as well where prices are too high, where there's too much profit taking happening, and you know, and this will this will normalize some of that. So there, it's not like you know, CON going away is an absolutely all bad thing. It just can have some, you know, some negative side effects if you don't understand what it could do. Mm-hmm. And of course, as we've we've discussed before, patients are very can be very lo- loyal to their physician or to their to where their physician is. Uh, you know, they're part of a hospital system or such. You know, they have a family member at the hospital working there, or if they just happen to like it because it's closer. You know, people are very loyal, so you know it, 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 the patient still has the choice. It sounds like uh, it just may cost more in some instances. Yeah, yeah, the patient has a choice, and again, I, if there was a way to relay both cost and quality differences, then, 
you know, that would assuage most of my concerns. The problem is it's very difficult to do that. It's not MRIs, most of healthcare aren't like, you know, shopping for the best price of on gas, right? Because what you know with gas, because you, you, it's tested and you see it on the pump, you know what the octane has to be. You know that mm-hmm. it can't have certain things in it because the federal government, well, now it's a, it's a commodity. I know right. that it doesn't matter which pump, it's the same product. And so if I can save five cents, that's great because I've neutralized the quality. Mm-hmm. But what you can't tell, you know, that in that fictitious scenario I put out, what you couldn't tell ahead of time is, well, what's the percentage chance that you're going to go to Bob's MRI? What's the percentage increase in chance that they're going to miss something? And that something for you could be fatal. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I don't, I don't want to sound overdramatic on it, but, but that stuff happens. I have a, I, I know a doctor, a neurologist who had a patient who, you know, got channeled to a, what I will call a lesser quality scanner and they missed an aneurysm. Blaine mm-hmm. missed it. I mean, the, the, it was the wrong radiologist reading it because several months later when they went to redo the study, the next radiologist saw it on the comparative study and said, oh my God, there's aneurysm. Now this, it was a young woman. She had small kids. She walked around for several weeks with an aneurysm in her head. And if it had burst, it had killed her. Now, mm-hmm. luckily it didn't, and she's fine, but who pays for that? Right. You know, um, so, th- you know, that's the, that's the downside of all this from a quality perspective. I wanna, finally, I want to take this from a different perspective, uh, and that's from the perspective from the people who want to open uh, an imaging center, get an MRI machine, open an ASC. What should they be thinking about right now if they are interested in doing this when they are then allowed to open it in two years? Well, it's, you know, the, the thing that the two years or the three years from MI gives them is some time to plan for it. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't have to rush. Um, there's going to be some construction time. They need to look at, you know, who's going to do surgery there, who's going to order off that MRI, who's going to be doing the reads, how are they going to staff it, all that stuff. So if done well, and these people use that time appropriately and correctly, um, you know, it could benefit our community pretty, it could benefit our community greatly you know, choice and, and competition is not a bad thing. Um, now, if what we get is a bunch of really questionable scanners in a strip mall, um, boy, that's probably not great. Um, right. other than for the insurance companies who will push patients there. I guess another question is we're, as we're thinking about it with the quality aspect that because of the fact that it can't be in the rural counties, it's gotta be in the more populated areas. Do you think you will have you know, like what you just said in a, you know, strip mall imaging center, or do you, do you think it might be still pretty competitive among the hospitals? No, we're going to have strip malls, imaging centers. Okay. Uh, firmly. I mean, I look at States where there aren't CONs, um, I'll, Florida, for example, you know, mm-hmm. you can't hardly drive around a city in Florida without seeing an MRI in a strip mall. Hmm. Um, now they, and so they'll have those and then they'll also have the, you know, the large independent imaging centers who produce wonderful quality and they'll have the hospitals who mm-hmm. produce wonderful quality. So, you know, they've got the whole gambit, you know, and, and, but the question is, does the patient who's going to the strip mall know what product they're getting um, or not? Right. And I would think probably most of the time not. So last thing, just to recap, some certificate of needs were changing in North Carolina. There's a little bit of a waiting period for ASCs and a slightly longer period for MRI machines. Uh, and that will, and it only applies into counties with populations of 125,000 or more. 
I guess one other thing as we're planning on it, North Carolina, you know, is, a, is one of the fastest growing states in the country. Lots of people are moving to North Carolina. Say uh, a county is not at 125,000 right now, but in three years it is. Is it then eligible to, ha- to not have certificate of need for imaging centers in ASC? Um, the correct answer is I don't know because nobody's okay. seen the exact bill yet. Okay. <laughs> um, they're still, I mean, they've announced the deal, but nobody's seen the language okay. of the actual bill yet. So we're not sure. And finally, because it was just part of this, how, how many more people are, are going to be on Medicaid? How many more patients do you think doctors can expect to see as Medicaid patients? Uh, it, probably, I guess, assuming it would be taking effect next year. Well, yeah, so we don't know that number exactly because there's a combination of two things. Um, And we don't know exactly, again, when it'll start because we haven't seen the bill yet. But everybody's thinking probably they've got to do some work to to get ramped up. So, you know, probably late this year or January 1 of next year is when it'll happen. Um, Now, there are some people right now who are on Medicaid who otherwise wouldn't qualify for Medicaid because of some... Um, relaxing of the rules that they did during COVID. Mm-hmm. It, the, the, the approach is they're going to try to keep those people on under this program so they don't have to throw them off Medicaid and then put them back on again in a few months. Um, and so right now doctors are seeing a lot of those people. Um, I haven't seen a really good number on how many additional people beyond that, but it's not an insignificant number. It's, mm-hmm. it's you know, several hundred thousand Um uh, but it's still sort of up for grabs because they're not quite sure how they're going to be able to swing that and how many people will fit under the criteria and that kind of stuff. But it's a, it is a significant amount of people. Well, we'll have articles linked in the show notes for this program wherever you're listening to this podcast, or you can find them at flatlining.net. You can also find uh, Dr. Glancombe Flecken's YouTube video about Texaco Mike and uh, his uh, interesting skit about United Healthcare's prior authorizations. Ron, as always, thank you very much for joining us on the Flatlining Podcast. Right. Thank you. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget you can engage with Ron and myself, plus other listeners of this program, in our chat, available exclusively on the free Substack app, available for iPhone and iPad, and now available for Android as well. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week.